Today, I'm going to finish off the um, series that I started a little over a year ago, going through the book of Daniel. So this is going to cover a fair bit of territory, but uh, I have a handout. Hang on a sec. Yeah. Would you? So the handout's going to cover like one of these really complicated sections and um, you may have seen this information before, you may not have. I'll uh, reference it in the message and uh, it's fairly important detail, but let's get started. So I want to talk to you about the final vision of Daniel, which is basically chapters 10, 11, and 12. So that's a fair bit to, uh, to bite off and chew. It's the longest and the most detailed of the visions given to Daniel. This time, it's a little different from some of the previous visions because this one, there's no symbolism, there's no riddle or anything like that. Uh, the focus of the vision is, is going to move us forward to the person who will rise up at the end time, uh, also known as the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the beast. And uh, you might think, well, you've already covered this. You covered this in one of the previous messages on Daniel, and uh, that is true, I did. But uh, the reason I'm covering it a second time is because, well, Daniel covers it a second time. The coming of this person is one of the key pieces of information that Jesus gave his followers uh, when they asked him that question, what will be the sign of your return? They wanted to know, I think, uh, I want to know, I don't know about you, I'd like to know, uh, hasten the day. And when he was answering them, he referenced the prophecy, this prophecy of Daniel two times when he, you know, it was his longest um, teaching on, on prophecy, not his only, but his longest. So this is uh, significant, significant even for those who, you know, really want to focus on the New Testament. Well, Jesus focused our attention on this prophecy. So this is the uh, man who rises up and he's got a lot of bad stuff to do. He's the one who invades Jerusalem. He's the one who sets up the abomination of desolation. Okay, let's set the scene. Setting the scene. So go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And it states or implies some important insight into angelic beings, all right? And their respective interests in the people and nations which interact with the chosen people of God. And you know, angels are very interesting and demons and angels and all that, but the real focus I want you to grab from this is the message overall that God has for us that don't worry, I'm on top of it. And the angels are there, and, 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 and God's telling us, you know, there's this interaction with the angels and so forth. But the main point is, I'm involved. I'm on top of this, okay? So it also tells us the angelic beings are very interested in the people and nations that interact with the chosen people of God. So that's, you know, if you read through the scriptures, it's mostly about, well, who comes in contact with Israel? There's a lot of other nations in the world. Scriptures don't really talk about those. Now in Daniel 10, verses one through three, 
establish uh, the day. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was also called Belshazzar, and its message was true and it concerned a great war. And the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. And at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks, and I ate no choice food, no meat, no wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. The date that we're looking at here is 536 to 535 BC. So it kind of pinpoints when this vision takes place. And uh, it's an interesting time because at the same time, the first group of exiles, those people who had been um, captured and taken off to Babylon, the first group of people were going back. And this is happening at the same time that Daniel's praying about what's going on he's, and he receives this vision. Now let's read verses four through nine. It says, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, so that's that great big river that's now in the country we call Iraq, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Afshaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. There were those with me who did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision, and I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Well, this vision that he sees uh, seems to correspond, not exactly word for word, but seems to correspond to the vision of Christ glorified that we can read of in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Very similar sort of a presentation, if you will. And uh, I think it's interesting to notice that Daniel's reaction to this, this man that he, he sees in this vision is, is different from the reaction he had from previous visions. And I know this is going back a few months when I talked about it, but in the previous times when he was getting a vision and there was an angel there, uh, he didn't drop to his knees in fear. This time he is deathly afraid. Okay, so it's a very different response that previously the angel Gabriel had appeared to him. So, I put it to you that this appears to be the pre-incarnate Christ with an angelic entourage, if you will, okay? And actually, Daniel 12, verse 5 tells us that. So I'm not really speculating that much because basically that's what it says. Uh, not that it's saying it's Christ, but you know, there's this man, the one with the legs of gleaming bronze and such, and then there are two angelic beings, and he's like over the river and they're on either side. One is probably Michael, who's mentioned in chapter 10, verse 13, and the other one might be Gabriel. We do not know, he's not identified by name. And Gabriel, of course, is one whose Daniel's already met. Now, if we pick it up in verse 10, it says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. 
Then he continued, Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Now, this hand that reaches down and touches him is sort of like a reassuring hand, if you will. And uh, perhaps it's the reassuring hand of, of Gabriel. You know, a familiar face. Daniel's already met Gabriel. He knows Gabriel. It also appears that Daniel's been praying again. And he's been praying for understanding. And uh, Gabriel basically said the same thing to him before in, in chapter 9. You know, greatly esteemed and you're about to receive an answer. I, I wonder if this time maybe he was um, praying about the, the people who were on their way back to Jerusalem to basically, you know, fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah that after 70 years this would take place. They're going back and he's, he's praying and he's receiving this vision at the very same time. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that it's on his mind. Uh, it's on his mind. Um, maybe he's concerned about some of the obstacles that, that they face some of the trials, some of the troubles that they're facing. And if you want more info about the kind of stuff that hindered the journey, hindered the whole project of, of going back to rebuild the temple, you can read Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, for example. They had a lot of troubles. And so I think that the, the context of this is him praying in a situation where he's concerned about God's people, he's concerned about stuff that's going on, and there's trouble. There's trouble afoot, there's things happening, and he's praying about it. And so again, I say to you that this vision that he receives is to reassure. Don't worry, I'm on top of this. Daniel, don't worry about it. This is part of my plan. I'm going to take care of it. The Prince of Persia. No, not the video game. This is, uh, this is something a little different, okay? Let's pick it up. Uh, verse 13 says, But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Okay, so this is a fascinating little verse, and you probably have heard someone talk about it at some point in the past. Um, Unless, unless you're very young, in which case this is your first time, but it's a fascinating little verse and it kind of pulls back the veil, if you will, pulls back the veil on the forces of spiritual wickedness that are at work in our world, actively working within human government. Now he's talking about Persia, that's the empire that they were in, they, were, uh, they had been hauled off to Babylon, Babylon was taken over by the Persians, so the Persians were their overlords, okay? It's basically talking about human government, okay? And this prince of Persia, he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with the angel, with Gabriel. Uh, so this is no mere human being, okay? Furthermore, he's also called a prince, like Michael. So you can see this is basically talking about some sort of spirit being, all right? We would assume that this is an angel. And he has a tremendous impact and influence on Persia, hence his you know, being called the king of Persia. This opens up some understanding for us about angels. One thing we need to know, and I, I think this... Um, 
really does need to be mentioned over and over again. Angels are real, okay? And some are good and some are bad, right? And number three, very important, and they influence human affairs. This is God's word speaking to you that says, these, these beings influence human affairs. And you know, there are sometimes when you see stuff going on in this world and you wonder, what in the, where, what? where's that coming from? Well, there, there is a battle going on in our world. Our world is subject to spiritual warfare in the seats of government and power. And you can look and you can read a little bit more about that in Ephesians 6 verse 12. You know, the forces of spiritual wickedness that are at work in the heavenly places, the, the heavenly places of God-ordained authority. And it's an important understanding for these people, for Daniel. Look, there's stuff going on here that you don't even see, but I'm on top of it. There might be evil in the world. I see it. I'm dealing with it. It has a purpose. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. So with this, this um, Prince of Persia, I have a question. And it's a question I ask myself. I don't know, maybe you've asked it. But when you, you know, read about this Prince of Persia and you read about Michael and they're, they're battling and all this kind of stuff, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, but so does this mean that demon powers can thwart God's will? You know, can de demons, like, upset everything and ruin God's plan? Well, the answer, I believe, is this. No. God is supreme, and that's part of the whole message of this vision. God is supreme, and uh, it's also very clear from his word that he grants human beings and angelic beings limited power, okay, and unlimited power free will. Alrighty? And so we and angelic beings, we can resist God, we can rebel, okay? And uh, it happens. So in this instance here, God's letting the angels battle it out, just like he does with human beings. I mean, you might have a person who's you know, a, a person of God, man or woman of God, and, and, but they have troubles and they have trials. And you might think, well, why, why would a person who's doing God's will have troubles? Why wouldn't everything just go whew, smooth as silk? Why do they have troubles? But they do, don't they? They do have troubles. And so he's letting the angels duke it out, just like he does with us. And... The important thing to remember is that God is always in control, okay? But he, he does allow the, the people and the angels that he's created freedom to act in this world. Okay, now during the centuries, and I made a little note to that effect here, but during the centuries that the Jewish people were in Persia, and that would cover 539 to 331 B.C., so it's, uh, what, 250 years? The Persians, they're kind of good, but they're kind of a mixed bag, like most human governments are. 
the Persians allowed them to return to Jerusalem through Cyrus. You know, God moved Cyrus to do this. But they had a lot of struggles and a lot of troubles. They had a lot of opposition and royal intrigue within the courts of Persia to contend with. For example, the book of Esther. What's that all about? That's taking place in the courts of the Persian kings, and it is all about basically someone trying to pull over a holocaust on all the Jewish people while they're in Persia. So as friendly as the Persians were, it was still a very difficult time. And you can read the book of Nehemiah, you can read the book of Ezra about some of the, the things that were going on in the background and the machinations of the, the people in power, and, and they were trying to do this and they were trying to do that. And there's plenty of detail that, you know, it was wicked and it was malicious stuff going on in the background in the Persian courts. So this, this battle kept on going. You know, this Prince of Persia, Michael and so forth, they were still doing battle, right? That's what this is about. Let's pick it up in Daniel 10, verse 14. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. Plus a verse. It says, uh, now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So he's not just explaining the situation at hand, but talking about stuff that's going to happen in the future. And while he was saying this to me, I bowed with face towards the ground and I was speechless. And then who, the one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. And I, I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong, be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so he said, Do you not know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So there's more trouble ahead. <laughs> but first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So some of our battles, some of our battles are deeply personal, you know. People have health issues, trials on, on the job. Some of the trials and tribulations and stuff we face are taking place on a national stage and you read about them in the news and, or the international stage and you worry about wars and rumors of wars. But for those who follow the Son of Man, the answer is the same. Trust God. To trust God. And that's what he wants from us. And he talks to us about stuff, and we read about prophecy here. We can read about things going on in the news. But the real focus is God wants us to trust him. And he's, he's opened up a window here that you know, he's talking about stuff that's going on in the background. That's so that we can have confidence. And remember where he says, be strong. So after Persia, there's this, there's this uh, mighty nation or empire, the Greek empire. And 
you might think, oh good, the Persians will be out of this, out of the picture. Oh good, whew, that's a relief. Well, actually the Greeks are worse. <laughs> Sorry, nope, the Greeks are worse. So they're kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire with the Greeks. And they bring about far worse persecution, uh, which is the subject of chapter 11. You know, so here's, here's this vision, Daniel's getting this vision, he's being told, be strong, be courageous. Oh, but there's worse stuff to come. <laughs> Not the encouragement I was hoping for, but that's what God says. All right. And uh, looking forward, God wants them to know some very important stuff. He wants them to know that the troubles are coming, okay, but they, they can trust him. So there's trouble ahead, but you can trust me. And he says, have peace. And he says, be strong. This stuff is coming. It's coming down the pike. I've told you about it. I'm on top of it. Uh, there's angelic beings at work in the background. Don't worry about it. Be strong and have peace. He's on the job. He's in control. And he's even got the outcome that he wants written down in a little book, the Book of Truth. Okay, this is stuff that's sure. It's a sure thing. And he says this to all our battles, personal, national, international. The answer is trust God. Okay, now my slide. And he also says at the end there, I took my stand to support and protect him. And uh, it says the first year of Darius the Mede very much happened. I mean, a lot of stuff happened in the first year of Darius. Babylon fell. Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years of captivity was coming to an end. Wow. And at that time, when this is all happening, this vision is happening, the first exiles under Zerubbabel and Joshua were on their way back to rebuild the temple, as God had promised. I mean, I think things looked pretty bad when they were in, in Babylon, but they had this promise from God, and I, he wants them to remember, you know, I told you I was going to restore you, and now I'm restoring you. So they can have confidence. But with all this good stuff happening, Satan was not pleased. Satan's not pleased. This is a chain of events that would lead to the coming of the Messiah. This would establish the groundwork for the first coming of Christ, which would bring about the freedom of, of men and women from their bondage to sin. It would bring salvation from death. And the adversary is not pleased. And he has more tricks up his sleeve. And in the future, he would work through the Greeks. And that's the, the point of this. So the Greeks, I know uh, I showed you these maps probably about six months ago. And again, you might wonder, well, why is he doing this all over again? Well, I'm doing it all over again because Daniel does it all over again. Okay, he goes through it twice. Um, I've heard, you know, repeating something is a form of emphasis. So this is something that's emphasized. There's quite a bit of material about it. And don't forget, this is something that Christ also referred back to two times. So the Greeks. Uh, go to Daniel 11, verses 2 through 4. It says this. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others, and when he's gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. 
And after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven, and it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Okay, so these two verses basically cover the fall of the Persian Empire to the Greeks. So there's going to be a new villain on the block, and it's a very important villain, if you will, because he pictures a lot of stuff that pertains to the end time. And God throws in some interesting details, actually a lot of details, to let us know just how much he's on top of things, how much he's got it all down. He's, you know, he, he has the outcome that he wants written down in the book of truth, if you will. So the, the kings that it mentioned, well, Cyrus was ruling at the time, after which three more kings would follow, a guy named Cambyses, which was uh, 530 to 522 BC, then Smerdis in 522 BC, then Darius Hisapes in 522 to 486 BC, and then a fourth comes along, as, as mentioned here in scripture. So a fourth king comes along, and this guy's name is Xerxes, and he reigns from 486 to 465. Now this Xerxes, the fourth king, there are other kings of Persia that come after that, but he's important, and it stops there because he does something really significant. Basically, Xerxes goes out and kicks the hornet's nest of Greece. And you know what happens when you kick a hornet's nest? Anyone ever kicked a hornet's nest or stepped? Let's, maybe you're not a fool. So have you ever stepped on a hornet's nest? Right. And what do those hornets do? And next thing you know, you're running down the block, right? He kicks the hornet's nest of Greece. He goes after them. So Greece is this little, little dinky place here. Here's the Persian Empire. Whoa! He goes over and thinks, these Greeks, you know, just take advantage of these people. He kicks them, and that kicks off a series of wars that uh, is over a century of warfare. And what happens is, boom, it goes from being the Persian Empire to the Greek Empire. All right? They basically take over all this territory. Uh, Alexander the Great conquers the Persians, and then, you know, as soon as he's done, he dies. He's only like 31 or 32 years old. So, again, I showed you this map before. The Greek kingdom is then divided into four parts. You know, you got this, the Greek part, the Asia Minor part, and then there's this part here, and that's basically the king of the north we're going to read about. And there's this section down here, which used to be Egypt, or is now Egypt and Libya, and that's the king of the south that we're going to read about. So, that's important stuff. See this little arrow here? That's... Jerusalem. And what's interesting here is that Jerusalem is right on the border of these two kingdoms. And so basically, the Bible forgets about these. They don't, they don't matter because they're not really interacting with the people of God, with Jerusalem. This, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies down here, they are of great interest to the Bible because Jerusalem's kind of stuck here in the middle, and as they fight back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, Jerusalem's caught in the middle. There's a long and ongoing conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south, okay? You know, this breakup here into four kingdoms is well-documented history, but as I mentioned, the Bible is mostly only concerned with 
two of these kingdoms, okay? So there's an ongoing conflict between north and south. Let's read Daniel uh, 11 verses. No, we're not going to read this part. Daniel 11, 5 verse 20 cover the, the entire sequence that I just kind of talked about of this back and forth struggle, okay? Which covers uh, 150 years from 323 to 175 BC. Okay, so why, like all of chapter 11 is about this stuff, okay? Why, why waste so much ink on these petty little kings in these crummy little empires that are long forgotten? Why, why do we care? Why does God care? Why not talk about big movers and shakers, you know, Julius Caesar or Siddhartha Gautama? What about them? Well, the answer is that Bible prophecy revolves around Israel, the people of God, the chosen people, and Jerusalem. And this revelation, this vision, shows, it shows, and it's moving forward, to show how Antiochus IV Epiphanes gains control of the Seleucid throne. And then he becomes basically the master of the land. And then this opens up the door for him to subject Judea to incredible persecution like they've never seen before. A persecution that is a symbol and type of the end time persecution, which again is according to Jesus. In Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16, he references it again and he says, okay, you wanna know the signs of my return? Well, I'm gonna point you back to Daniel. And that's what he does. Here's where the handout comes in. Bing! Okay, I made you a handout. And these verses offer you a detailed overview of all the alliances and the wars and the intrigues between the king of the north and the king of the south. The Seleucid king and the Ptolemaic king. And rather than go through it all line by line, reading through the Bible, reading through the scripture, I've just prepared this chart for you that lines up each verse with the historic event that it pointed to, okay? Um, you can, maybe you've already got one of these, you know, I, I kind of reworded some of this stuff to make it a little more um, up-to-date, vernacular. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, crazy names of these ancient kings and stuff like that. And uh, I, I hope it's helpful. I've kind of taken the time to go through it in, in my notes and you, you look at it and you go, wow, that's an incredible amount of detail. Wow. <laughs> okay, so I gotta be honest with you folks. You got all this incredible detail. This stuff all, all is lined up there. Here, here's something you need to know. Uh, because this set of prophecies that, that you have in, on that handout, which is in Daniel 11, because these prophecies are so detailed, and they line up with historic events so well, some conclude, well, then that makes it quite obvious that this must have been written after these events occurred. So the story goes that sometime in around 165 BC, somebody writes all this stuff down, and all the stuff that you've got in this handout, and then they kind of basically staple it onto the bottom of the scroll of Daniel, and it's like, ah, okay. Isn't God amazing? He can predict all this stuff? That's, that's basically the argument. And this theory, 
I don't know how long it's been around, but it, it really took off in the 1800s, so about 150, maybe 170 years ago. So there's been about 170 years for people to thrash their way through all this stuff. And there's lots of, lots of uh, ink has been spent on this. I've read a fair bit of it, and I'm, um, if you want to know any more information about it, just let me know and I'll help you out. But um, let me put it in a nutshell for you. Since then, plenty of, of debate and scholarship has centered around the dating of the book of Daniel. And I just touched on it very briefly in the first message I did in this whole series. But then what they do is they break up parts of it. And they say, oh, that part was written then, but this part was written much later. And then they just, you know, like put it all together. So there's been all kinds of studies looking at the linguistics of the words and then um, textual forensics, you know, where they go back and they find an old manuscript and they can find the date on it and when it was written, when it was referenced. Okay, so there's been lots and lots of discussion about this stuff. And I think that... Uh, Believers have made a very sound case that the prophecy was written when it says it was, which is the third year of Cyrus, okay? So there's your handout. I hope it's helpful. I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's some stuff in it that's really very interesting, like this thing where uh, the, 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 the king is going to try and make an alliance through marriage and it lines right up with the story of this woman, Bernice. So there's all kinds of little uh, crazy details in there. So this takes us to Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes, all right? And much attention is, is uh, given to this man in scripture, and I know that now I've done the second message on it within a year. I'll move on after this, promise. But a lot of attention is given to this man because he profoundly affects the chosen people. Uh, he persecutes them so harshly that they rise up. And under the Maccabeans, they rise up and for a very brief, shining moment, they establish an independent kingdom. And that basically establishes the groundwork for the, the, the milieu, the nation, the, the situation that Jesus is born into. And uh, the events of Antiochus's early rule are also included in the chart that I prepared for you, and that covers verses 21 through 28. Let me pick it up in verse 29 then. Isn't that nifty how I just zipped over all that stuff? Okay, verse 29 through 30 says, At the appointed time he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. So this is talking about Antiochus. Okay. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So this guy Antiochus is uh, going to invade. He, Antiochus is the king of the north. And he invades the king of the south, which is Egypt, the Ptolemaic kings. He invades the king of the south again. And at this point, a new player is introduced into the game, okay? The ships from the coastlands, the western coastlands. That's Rome. That's the Roman navy. This is all part of history. This all happened. And uh, those are the ships of the coastlands. And they come to the aid of the Egyptians because they want to keep tight grip on all that luscious grain that comes out of the Nile Delta. 
So they basically humiliate Antiochus. Not only do they beat him, but they bring him into a parlay, and then they basically just they shame him in front of everybody. And he's humiliated, and he goes skulking back home. And what does he do when he gets home? I mean, when, you know, if had a bad day, you go home and you kick the cat, right? <coughs> cat. He goes home, and he starts taking it out on the Jews. He's mad. He's mad, mad, mad. There's nothing he can do. He can't, he can't go and fight the Egyptians. He can't stand up to the Romans. So he takes it out on, on the Jews. And uh, they are the people of the covenant that is referred to there. Now, verse 31 through 35, pick it up. It says, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. So again, there's the second time that's mentioned, and Christ refers to that in his uh, prophecy in Matthew 24. And with great flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And when they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it's, it uh, will still come at the appointed time. Very important little phrase there. At the appointed time, I've got this worked out, I know the outcome I want. So this is the great persecution of the Jews, which occurred in 167 BC. And I, I covered the details of this persecution and, you know, kind of went through it all thoroughly. And that, that was in the message that I did on Daniel 8. The abomination of, of desolation here is the one that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16. So just as a rough overview, on the penalty of death, this man Antiochus forbids circumcision of children, forbids owning a Bible. If you had a Bible, you... It would be taken from you and you would be, your head would be cut off or something like that. It forbid making sacrifices to Yahweh. It forbid the observance of the festivals. Okay? And if you tried to do these things, you would be put to death. So this is a serious persecution. And some Jews were corrupted and they, they kind of went along with it. Okay, this is cool. It's the new world order. We're going to go along with this, you know, just kind of like meld everything together and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And some people resisted it and they lead what ends up being called the Maccabean revolt, which sets up the Maccabean kingdom. A lot of history, right? <laughs> a short time. A prophecy for the future. So the events recorded through verse 36 through 45, kind of move into new territory. They're not on your chart that I, I gave you. They're not there because they don't correspond to any historic events. So you've kind of moved into whole new territory. It doesn't line up with any historic events. At this stage, the prophecy moves into the far distant future, as Daniel was told, things to come. Well, this is going way out because this is going to the time of the end. And verse 40 basically tells us, this is about the time of the end. It says uh, in verse 40, at the time of the end, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is moving into a whole new realm of time, way out there. So the time of the end. And um, there's this transformation from Antiochus IV, the historical figure, 
to this persecutor who appears at the end time. He is a symbol of, of this terrible thing for the end time. And as I mentioned previously, gives us a little insight perhaps into end time events, although we, have, we need to be careful about how we interpret that. So in Daniel 11, let's pick it up in verse 36. It says, the king will do as he pleases. So this king of the north will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. So that's kind of making you think about the prophecies in the New Testament. Man of lawlessness, the beast. Yeah, it is. Because it's the same person. And he will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. This stuff is going to happen, people, bad things. You know, God's saying, look, bad things are going to happen. Why would God tell you about, well, he's going to say, well, bad stuff's going to happen to you. But he wants you to be ready for it, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. And he will make them rulers over many people and he will distribute the land at a price. So this is the future king who Antiochus IV is a foretelling of, looking forward to. It's the man of lawlessness. It, this is the Antichrist. It's the beast. It's the same. And what's he going to do? Well, he'll speak great blasphemy. You can line that up with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Or Revelation 13 verses 5 through 6. He's going to have respect for only war and power, which lines up with Revelation 13, verse 4. Revelation 16, verse 13 through 16. And he will be highly successful and very generous and distribute generous rewards to those who submit to him, which is basically what you read in Revelation 18, verse 9 through 19. The final battle. Let's read verse 40 through 45. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. So this, this north-south rivalry kind of shows up again. So this is a map of Israel. <clears throat> king of the north, this is his territory. It goes way out here, of course. This is the king of the south. His territory goes way out here. And it, here we are, again, looking at Jerusalem. So the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north, and remember this says specifically, at the time of the end. This is not going back to the ancient rivalries between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. This is at the time of the end. The king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and the great fleet of ships. And he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, that's the promised land, the Holy Land. And many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. That's where people get the idea that the place of safety is there, by the way. 
verse 42, he will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. That's right here where the little red dot is. That's the plains of Megiddo where he's going to pitch his tents between the sea and Jerusalem. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So the final battle comes to Israel. And if you've been around long enough, you've probably heard that before. Uh, we usually go through that very often on the Day of Trumpets. Um, <clears throat> and through the power seeking of, of this king of the north, vast armies end up in this area. And this is the setting for the return of Christ. They all gather together. And uh, this is the setting for the return of Christ, who's going to come in power and glory. And that's an event that we mark by the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? And even though the armies are gathered there to fight one another, they're actually going to then turn their guns and fight against Christ when he appears. And you can read more about this great big battle in Joel 3, verse 2 through 16. Zechariah 12, verses 2 through 9. Also Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 21. And basically, most of Revelation, basically chapters 13 through 19. And uh, verse 45 says, he will come to his end. You know, he sets up this mighty camp there at Megiddo. And then from there, if you read, you know, in Zechariah and Joel, he goes from there, moving down to Jerusalem. And they basically do battle in this little valley above Jerusalem called Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. And then he comes to an end. He's done away with. He's destroyed because he's fighting against Christ. And you can read about that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, or Revelation 19, verse 20. So Daniel gets this message, and it's, and it's like, you know, they're expecting good stuff. The people are going back to rebuild the temple. Whoa, it's up, up, and away. And God's prophecy says, well, actually, there's all kinds of trouble ahead. <laughs> wow. Wow. So imagine God told you, you have a vision, okay? Imagine that God told you, okay, in one year, you're going to get a horrible form of cancer, and uh, you're going to suffer, but I will save you and I will restore you. How would you respond when the cancer actually hits you? What would you think? How would you respond? Would it make the horror of having cancer easier to process? Only if you trust God. Only if you trust Him and know that He has your back and that He is in control and He's in charge and He knows what's going on. 
then I think you can process that kind of information. If he were to tell you, there's some serious trouble ahead for you, I want to tell you in advance. You need to walk through it. This is what, what Yahweh's saying to Judah through Daniel. You know, Daniel wrote all this stuff down and he distributed it out to the people. You know, we, we, get, we, we can see that Daniel's writings were known among the people that Ezekiel was, was talking with or um, Zechariah, Haggai. So he distributed all this stuff. Not only that, this is, this is, this is what Jesus told you. He said, you're going to have persecutions and, and troubles. Right? Didn't he? He's always told you that. And if you were counseled properly before baptism, you were told by his ministry that troubles and trials lay ahead. And I, I want you to walk through them. But what's important is that you remember that I'm with you. And I'm on top of it. And there's stuff going on that you might not see, but I'm in, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and you can trust me. Trust me. Troubles and trials are, are what lay ahead for everybody who follows Christ. And we all have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And to do that, we must learn to trust God. I, I think in some ways the only way we learn to trust God is by being thrown into situations where it's kind of like strength testing. You know? So Daniel 12, verse 1 through 4 says, At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as what has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people... Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And many will go here and there to increase knowledge." Now, Jesus actually refers to this phrase here, this phrase, which is a time of great distress, such as is never seen from the beginning to the end, the time of greatest distress. And it's in the middle of his long teaching on prophecy in Matthew 24, verse 21. So that's another way that he refers back to this section of Daniel yet again. And this is important stuff to know. According to Jesus, according to him, it's important. And I think in this way, the, the, the Master is drawing our attention to this particular prophecy. And, um, you know, this, this is talking about the resurrection, isn't it? Did we just read about the resurrection? Yeah, we just read about the resurrection. And maybe he's asking us to consider this, that the, the, the resurrection, that moment that we all look forward to, that salvation from death, that moment that we all look forward to <laughs> actually comes to pass at the same time as the greatest distress on earth. Isn't that interesting? The two things are together like that. 
the greatest victory and the greatest distress. They're tied together. So go to verse 5 through 7. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on the bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand, and with his left hand towards heaven, I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So the breaking of the holy people means that there's trouble ahead for Israel. Right? And you've probably heard that before. You'll hear it again at trumpets, maybe. But there's trouble ahead for Israel, and there's trouble ahead for God's church. What the scriptures say. I mean, if we are indeed living in a, you know, close to the end time, the scriptures say the church is in for a rough ride. And maybe that just means that there's personal trouble ahead for you. However, what's important, and I think if you, if you pull back and don't get bogged down in the details too much of history and look at what, what, what is God doing in all of these things, you can trust God. You can trust Him. Even though things look awful, you can trust Him. And He wants you to know that. God is so focused on us learning to trust Him. It's everywhere in Scripture. He wants us to trust Him. And I think it baffles Him that we don't. Well, I don't know if God's baffled or not, but <laughs> it amazes him that we, we don't just trust him. So verses 8 through 13 say, I heard, but I don't, did not understand. And so I asked my Lord, what is the outcome of all this? Where's it all headed? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. And many will be purified, made spotless, refined, but the wicked will be, continue to be wicked. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way until the end. You will rest and then you will be at the end of your days and you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance." So it is good for you to seek, to know, and to understand prophecy. It's a good thing. And I, I whipped up that handout for you. You can go through that. You can take a look at it. It's a good thing. I think God wants us to understand and go through prophecy. But what does he want us to take away from it? I think he wants us to walk away from it saying, I can trust God. I can trust him. I have confidence in him and I can trust him. He's not going to pull the rug out from underneath of me. I can trust him. So it's good to know and understand prophecy, but as it says here, okay, Daniel, go your way. You know, but it, and it says many will be refined, many will be made spotless. Your main objective is to be purified, to be made spotless, to be refined, and as he told Daniel, to move forward towards your final inheritance. And to do all those things, 
we need to trust God. Because if we trust him to save, we also should trust him to obey. Amen.